to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and to talk to you about what we've just been doing. To encourage you to do it again and to do it more. We're going to be talking about drawing near. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holiest in the blood of Jesus by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain or the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this central passage in the book of Hebrews is very important. It's a synthesis of all the doctrine that's gone on earlier. And after this is a whole load of practical things that the writer talks about. And this little passage summarizes all of those as well. So it's a very important and a very significant piece of scripture. Now, in the chapters that uh, have gone on earlier, the writer has explained that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant... He is a better priest, a better sacrifice. He founded a better system than Judaism. He's better than angels, and he's better than Moses. And explains how Jesus has brought in a whole new ball game of coming into the presence of God. No longer is it by ritual, by ceremony, by legal doings, but it's in Christ. And so he then says, you must avail yourself fully of all that he's done for you. It's important that you enjoy all the privileges that Jesus Christ has won on your behalf. So I'm going to talk to you through this passage and explain the background or the basis of being a worshipper, the characteristics of being a true worshipper, and the duties of a worshipper. And we'll be following on in our series that we've been giving recently about worship. Okay. So we just take it verse by verse. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holiest, or some translations will have sanctuary, in the blood of Jesus. Now, who knows what the holiest is? What's he talking about? Anybody know? It's very important when you read the book of Hebrews, or at least it's very helpful, if you've got some background knowledge to the Old Testament. And so when he talks, we want to be confident to enter into the sanctuary, or enter into the holiest. What's he t- anybody know what he's talking about? Holy, holy. The holy of holies. Right, now, true to form, <laughs> I'm getting into a habit of doing this now. I've got a little drawing of the tabernacle. It's flash, isn't it? You can't see all of it because I can't get it on this one. Okay. That bit at the bottom, <laughs> this bit here is, is the altar of burnt offering. You can't see that because it's on the brickwork. <laughs> this line all the way around is the court. This, this area is the court. And this is the, t- the tabernacle that was set up by Moses for the Israelites to worship, to approach God, to deal with sin. This is where the priests washed after they'd dealt with the offerings, the sacrifices on this altar here. Uh, and only the priests could go in through this door like a sort of curtain and they ministered daily in the holy place this place here but no one dared to go into the holy of holies because there was the ark with the various things in the ark like the uh, tablets of the ten commandments Aaron's rod that budded and a, a little pot full of manna and the presence of God was in that place the Shekinah glory to step in there without being the right person at the right time in the right way was instant death 
That was where God lived. That was the dwelling place of God. The tabernacle was set up for God to dwell amongst men. And there was a certain way in which you had to deal with that. Otherwise, you're in real big trouble. Now, the Holy of Holies was only entered one day of the year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest alone went in. And only he went in in a certain way. He went in with blood. He went in with uh, special white robes on, not his normal robes. Uh, He went in with incense. He had to wash himself in a certain way and all this sort of stuff. And apparently tradition tells us that so afraid were the priests that he might do something wrong and drop down dead, that they tied a rope around his leg because there'd be no way of getting him out again. (laughs) Uh, If you thought Raiders of the Lost Ark was impressive, I'm telling you this is more... (laughs) This is the real thing. They were pretty frightened. Approaching God was fearful. Fearful prospects approaching God. You just couldn't do it. Whole armies were flattened before the presence of God when the ark was covered by the armies of the Israelites. And and, uh, it was covered in all these various skins, so you couldn't actually see the thing itself. But there it was exposed, it was open. And uh, you could go in here if you were a priest, but you couldn't go in there. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, the counterpart of that, heaven, if you like, the heavenless, the place where God is, where God dwells, we can go in all the time. He says, we have confidence to go in. We're not just invited. We're not just able. But we have confidence. And the word confidence here means freedom, means no fear. It's taken from a word that means to be able to speak freely in company. Uh, And you're able to be confident because of all that follows in the next few verses. So we're going to look at that. Now, It's similar for Christians. Some people are quite happy as Christians to stay in the area that was around the tabernacle, the court. There was the altar of burnt offering and the lava. There was sacrifice for sin. There was daily washing. And some Christians are quite happy to stay there. They're quite happy to be satisfied with being forgiven uh, and to be a certain amount of a relationship with God. There are other Christians that manage to get into the holy place. Uh, That's where they have fellowship properly with other Christians, they have fellowship with God, they're able to pray, there is the testimony that's given out, these things are represented by the candlestick and the altar of incense and the uh, table of the showbread and things like that. And there's Christians who have that kind of relationship and they're quite happy with that. But God says, I am not satisfied that you should be satisfied with those things. I want your heart. I want you to come right into my presence. I want you to come boldly into my presence. I don't want you to hang around the other side of the veil, the other side of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy. I want you to come right in. I want you to be with me. Although I'm God and you were originally just sinful flesh, I've dealt with all of that. And by the blood of Christ, you can come right in to the very holiest. And that's why I said, therefore, we have confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, God wants face-to-face communion, something that was impossible in the Old Testament. God wants face-to-face communion with you all the time. He wants to draw your heart after his. He wants to fellowship with you in the Spirit all the time. We do that by the blood of Jesus. We enter in the value or in the virtue of the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament priests had to enter with blood, uh, with the blood of bulls and the blood of rams, but they were terrified. But Jesus, Jesus enables us to be bold. With the blood of Jesus, we've got confidence to go right in to his very presence. Just look back a few verses in chapter 10 and verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, and as a result of that, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus has been sacrificed for sin once, fully, totally, so that God remembers your sins no more. And even in the Old Testament, it says, I've cast all your sins behind my back. 
buried them in the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west. So are your sins separated from God. That's why in the blood of Jesus you can come right into the presence of God. And God wants you to come there. Verse 20. Have confidence to enter by the new and living way which he opened up for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. A new and living way. The word here for new is actually a word meaning fresh. You see, Christ's blood never loses its power. It's always fresh. It's always giving life. It's always changing you. And so it becomes a living way. Not a way based on dead sacrifices, like the Old Testament, but the approach to God in Christ has power, like a fountain that's ever flowing. Now, the Christians in the very early days weren't actually called Christians. They were called the followers of the way. You see that in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2, that Christianity was actually called the way. And it was because the way to God had changed. No longer was it through a system of sacrifices and offerings and ceremonies. But the whole approach to God had changed altogether. And so the early Christians were called followers of the way. They'd got a new way to God that they reveled in. And it's a living way because Christianity is based on resurrection. You see, our life in God is supposed to be based on resurrection every day. Ever fresh, ever alive. We can minister to God and to each other and to the world in the power of his resurrection. The Holy Spirit, when he comes upon us, he's coming in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just some vague power, but because Jesus has been raised from the dead, been exalted to the right hand of God, he's sent out the Holy Spirit, bringing his resurrection power into the life of his people. That's how we minister. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about we don't know the greatness of that power which is towards us. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power. When you pray with someone and God starts touching them, that resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ is moving through you because it's a new and living way. You're in the way. You're in the way of God. The Holy Spirit is taking you more and more into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ the Holy of Holies, and the Holy Spirit is touching you, you're praying with someone, and it's powerful because the resurrection of Christ is becoming imminent in your life, through your hands, through your prayers. It's a new and living way, based upon resurrection. And everybody who comes to Christ, he gives life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He imparts life to all who follow him. By the new and living way which he opened up for us through the curtain. You see, Adam, when he was sinful in the Garden of Eden, ensured that there was a way out of paradise, but there was never a way back in. But Christ has swapped the whole thing around, and with him, he's given us a way in, and there's no way out. It's a living way resurrection power you come into the way you can't get out again once you're a Christian a true born again evangelical Christian you're saved once saved always saved you can't get out Adam got you out and couldn't get you back in again but Jesus has got you into the presence of God and you can't get out but you might not enjoy all of it properly which is why I want to talk to you this morning so that you're in full enjoyment of all the privileges of being in that way which he opened up for us through the veil. That is, through his flesh. Now, I've just got another little drawing of the tabernacle. we just have a look at this bit first. The veil was the separating curtain between the Holy of Holies and the holy place. Um, the best I can do on a piece of plastic, but it must have looked something like this. We don't really know what it looked like. Flash, eh? <laughs> Chris, wisdom, eat your heart out. <laughs> right, it must have looked something like that. It's quite big. The whole of, Holy of Holies was actually a sort of 15-foot cube, or 10 cubits if you're into cubits. I don't know what it is in millimetres. I can do cubits and feet, but I can't do millimetres. And um, down here, this is where the table was with loaves of bread on. 
the lampstand would have been over here. This is the altar of incense. It says even in Hebrews, we don't really know what it looked like, but we know it was there. We know certain things about it. So there was the altar of incense. Now the priest would, to get into the presence of God once a year, would have had to pull this sort of curtain, um, which was sort of fine twined linen with blue and purple and red sort of cunning work, whatever that was. And it's got cherubims on it. We don't know what they are either, really. So these are little cherubims. (laughs) Sort of things with wings. (laughs) Yes. Best we can do. This is smoke. (laughs) The smoke's good. (laughs) It's not cotton wool. (laughs) But this 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 is where daily the priest... Burnt incense, you see. Anyway, once a year, he would, he'd have to creep around. He'd have to pull this heavy curtain to one side and creep into the presence. The way it wasn't open, even for the high priest, once a year. There was no openness about going into the Shekinah glory, into the majesty and presence of God. He'd have to pull this round and creep in. He'd go rope round his foot. And he'd got a, a sensor-waving incense and blood. And, oh, I haven't done it right. You know, is the blood in the right place? Oh, it's dreadful. And God didn't want that, so... We read in Matthew's Gospel that when Christ was on the cross, what happened? The veil of the temple, which was, the temple was only like this, only with bricks and mortar. It's based on the same thing. The veil of the temple was ripped in two. Why? Because Jesus had opened the way. There was no curtain anymore. The way into God was suddenly open. The veil was ripped in two at the same time that Jesus was rent on our behalf on the cross and the way to God was now open and the two compartments became one if you like there was no special place because the Christian can move straight into the presence of God from wherever he is so the veil hid the glory but also gave entrance to the glory and that's just like Jesus' flesh Jesus was God but his flesh hid the majesty of the glory that was inside if you like so that people could look on the infant Jesus and ignore him just as a baby. However, some people worshipped him. They saw more. There was something more. They saw what was behind that flesh. People mocked Jesus while he was walking around doing miracles. They mocked at him. Some people spat at him, even on the cross. But some people, and John says, we looked at him different. We looked with faith and we beheld his glory. You see, his flesh was like a curtain, was like a veil. It hid the glory, just like the curtain in the tabernacle hid the glory. And that's why it says, through the veil that is through his flesh. Access to God and fellowship with God is because of Jesus' life. Because Jesus took on that curtain, took on flesh, became a man. And through all the work of atonement on Calvary... He opened the way for us to come into the very presence of God. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, just uh, a few pages back. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. You see, Jesus said, No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no access to God apart from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says much the same in Colossians 1 verse 21. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the atonement that he made with that body has enabled you to be changed so that you can have access into the very throne room of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God hasn't changed. God hasn't lowered his standards. But through the work of atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has changed you. And all those people who put their faith in him, he changes. Not just in word only, but there is a radical change in the very depth of your your being so that you've got a new heart and a new spirit. And you enter into that way. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. So we're confident to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. 
because we're in a new and living way, because of the work of atonement when the veil was rent and Jesus died on the cross. And also we have confidence because Jesus is a great priest over the house of God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. This is a real Bible study day today. Make you work. It's good for you. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. And he has put all things under his feet and made him head over all things for for the church, for you. He's head over all things. He's in heaven now ruling over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is in heaven as a great high priest over the house of God. That's you. Ordering all circumstances that are going on in the universe for your benefit. Is that encouraging? Or is that encouraging? Nothing that happens in the universe happens without God knowing the effect it's going to be for the church. That includes persecution, devastations that go on, the difficulties in your life, the roof tiles falling off this week. Whatever happens, it works for your benefit. All things work together for the good for those that love God. And all things generally work together for the good of the church. Because he does it for his body. He's head over all things. He's in heaven now praying for you. He's a great priest. That's his job. He's there praying for grace for you when you're in need. He's always praying for you. If you feel nobody ever prays for you and you're on your own, then I've got news for you. Jesus is always praying for you. Even when you turn your back on him, he prays for you. It says here, a few chapters earlier, in chapter 7, the former priests were many because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's not going to die. He's always alive. So he continues forever as a priest. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him. It's good news if you need to know Jesus today. He can save you if you draw near to God. Then he says, he always lives to make intercession for them, those that love him. Always lives to make intercession. He's in heaven now, praying for you. Praying for your benefit. Praying that you get to know him more. Praying that you'll come further along this way and spend more time in the Holy of Holies. Your name's on his heart, always. In the Old Testament times, the priests had this sort of breast peace thing and there were jewels on it and the people of Israel's name were written on those jewels because they were close to his heart so whenever he went into the presence of God the light of God shone on those names whenever the priest went into the presence of God those names were there whenever Jesus goes into the presence of God and prays for you your name is reflected in the very face of God because he cares about you but the names of the people of Israel were also written on the priest's shoulders on some onyx stones that were on both shoulders. Six on one and six on the other. And that was symbolic of the power. Shoulders being a picture of power, strength. The power of God supporting the names. Just like Jesus is in heaven now. With all his power supporting you. So your name's on his heart and your name's on his shoulders. Your name's in a place of power. Your name's in a place of love. Always. Always. God can't look at Jesus without seeing your name. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is in heaven representing you. And God can't see him without seeing you. Isn't that wonderful? He cares for you. He's looking after you. He's a good priest. Verse 22. Right, so since all these things are going on, this is the basis of our coming to God, what are the characteristics of being a worshipper, of coming to God? Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. That's the command. Don't just stand in the court. Don't just stand in the holy place. But draw near. Come right into the presence of God. Because the sufficiency of Christ's offering in his flesh and because of the power of his priesthood, we've been brought right into the very throne room of God, right into his presence before his face. So let's not deny it. Now this is true. But... If you fail to believe it, or if you fail to apprehend it, you won't enjoy the privileges of it. It's for you. It's like as if Christ has given you a gift, and you're too either afraid or unsure to open it up and take it to yourself. I heard of a man once that C.T. Studd was speaking to about salvation, and he explained the gospel to him. And that was a woman. That was a duchess or something, if I remember right. Some aristocratic lady that's right <laughs> and she was, she was a bit sort of highfalutin really and um, he explained the gospel and she understood it clearly and he said it, the gospel is offered to you like a gift and all you've got to do is unwrap it and take it to yourself and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and she said to him she said do you mean to say that I get saved as a duchess on the same basis as my footman would. And he said, that's right, you've got it. She said, in that case, I won't. <laughs> and she didn't get saved. Pride just took it away. Incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. But God does that. He gives gifts. And sometimes we don't open the gifts. Now, this privilege of coming right into the presence of God anytime, anywhere but especially on Sunday when we come together. It's a fantastic privilege. And yet we can sit at the back or we can, we can even have our hands up, but our heart's not right. We're not really apprehending the fact that we can come right into the very presence of God. Oh, I don't feel like it this morning. I'm a bit tired. Incredible. God's here. We must apprehend it. We must believe it. We must lay hold of it for ourselves. You see, he says, let us draw near. He's not saying, let the apostles draw near, or let all the leaders of the church draw near. He's talking to everybody. You're all welcome. You're all accepted. There's no one who isn't offered a place. See, in 1 John chapter 3, it says we're all children of God. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... So let's come to the Father and get excited about it. God is your Father. Before you got saved, he was your judge. And you will have to pay if you don't have Christ give you forgiveness and pardon for your sins. Before he was a judge to you, but now he's your Father. Christ has paid the penalty for all your sin. And he welcomes you as a Father. Isn't that good news? It's good news, isn't it? I think so. I was destined for hell. That's where I was going. God got hold of me, changed me, and says, right, instead of going to hell, I want you to come and be with me. Right in the throne room of heaven. We don't even know what that means, really, do we? We have a lot to learn about being in the Spirit. This morning is nothing. We had a good time this morning. <laughs> and we also had quite a good time this afternoon. <laughs> I had a good time this morning. <laughs> but that's nothing, you see. We have a lot to learn about coming into the presence of God. We have a lot to learn. But we need to come together. We all need to get hold of our privileges of being encouraged to come into the very presence of God the Father and enjoy that and learn from each other. There's a lot to learn yet. Come with true hearts. That's how you come. You come with true hearts. He doesn't say clever hearts. You have to be clever. Everybody's breathing a sigh of relief. <laughs> Rosie Pilgrim's breathing a sigh of relief, and she's a teacher. What chance have we got? <laughs> you don't have to be clever. 
further good news. You don't have to be strong. He doesn't say with strong hearts. A lot of weak people about. We especially seem to feel weak on Sunday morning. I don't know what we get up to on Saturday nights, but sometimes we feel so tired. But you don't have to be strong. He just wants you to come true. With true hearts. Sincere. Honest. Coming in reality. You see, the people who are the most sensitive to the failures of their hearts are the very people that God wants to come. If you say, I can't come because I'm a real mess. God says, great, you're dead honest. You are a mess, but come anyway, and I'm going to put you right. <laughs> See, he wants you to be true. He doesn't want you to be hypocritical. Jesus hated hypocrites. He doesn't want you to be hypocritical. He doesn't want you to put on this plastic Christian face that we sometimes do on a Sunday morning. How are you, brother? Oh, well, I'm fine. Oh, dear. <laughs> Underneath. He wants you to be honest. He wants you to come truthfully. And when we get into worship, he wants you to be in reality. Don't do what everybody else is doing, just out of peer pressure. If it's not true for you to raise your hands and dance about, then don't do it until it is. Let God move on you first. Don't just copy everybody. Be real. Be true. Because the true heart is the heart that the Holy Spirit is going to use. He's the one that he's going to speak to and use you in prayer later on in the meeting. Come true. If you don't come true, nothing's going to happen for you. You come with a true heart. So don't worry if you're weak. You're called to come. So it's important that we guard our heart in chapter 3 of, um, of Hebrews. He says this, Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, verse 12, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another. You must take care of your heart. Above all, guard your heart. This is why we spent some time a few months ago talking about keeping your heart. Get the tapes, it's important. If your heart's not right, everything else goes wrong. Because out of the heart flow the issues of life. So you must be renewed in your inner man. Desire God's will. Your heart and your inside, your inner man must be totally given over to God. Come with a true heart. And then he says, come with full assurance. In other words, full trust in the work of Jesus to give you acceptance. Don't come doubting whether you're accepted or not. Because God says you are welcome. You are accepted. Because the blood of Jesus has enabled you to come. It's not what you feel like. Again, earlier in Hebrews, in, in chapter 4. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message which they heard didn't benefit them because it didn't meet with faith. Now, my message to you this morning to encourage you to come right into the presence of God is going to be no good if it doesn't meet with faith. You must believe. Don't be half-hearted, but fully get hold of what I'm saying. Believe that you're welcome. Believe that you're accepted in the presence of God. And then it says that your hearts are sprinkled and your bodies are washed. And here it's talking about inward cleansing. In chapter 9 and verse 14, it says, The blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. It will purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Your heart's sprinkled when you confess your sin and the blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin. It cleanses you, as it says here, from an evil conscience. Our heart's sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now what's an evil conscience? Well, an evil conscience is a conscience that's full of guilt. It's important that we deal with barriers before we come into the presence of God because an uneasy conscience is a real barrier in worship. If you're feeling guilty and grotty and dirty before God, although God is welcoming you, you must deal with that. Otherwise, you aren't going to enjoy the worship. You aren't going to enjoy the company of God because you're conscious of guilt. But God has enabled you to deal with that. He says, the blood of Christ will take all of that guilt away all you've got to do is confess it, deal with it, keep short accounts with God. And brothers, the guilt will go. The feeling of grottiness will go. 
Don't keep guilt stored up for weeks and weeks and weeks. If you do something wrong and the Holy Spirit shows you that you're guilty of doing something wrong, then go to God, confess it and get it cleansed and get dealt with and then carry on. Don't store it and labour under a big bag of guilt on your back, making you feel grotty. You certainly can't enjoy worship if you do that. But the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. So you can have that conscience dealt with so that it's no barrier to you. See, our access is always open to the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. But our enjoyment of it can be interrupted by sin. So deal with that. Then it says that your bodies are washed. Psalm 24 says that it's not just a pure heart that's required, but clean hands also. And the bodies being washed is uh, a picture of outward cleansing that's performed by the Holy Spirit in our lives. The washing of the water of the word. In Ezekiel 36, he talks about our bodies being washed with pure water. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to deal with our walk. It's our responsibility to make sure we walk right. That we're yielding our members to God. That every action of our lives is under the power and guidance and sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's job to point our way out if we step out of line. Now all this talk about blood and water sounds a little bit strange. You know, It's a bit figurative, a bit weird to understand. So why is he talking about it? But again it goes back to the days of the tabernacle where all the time things were being done with water and with blood. In the court, the priest daily would receive and sprinkle the blood on the altar of burnt offering. He also had to wash in the lava or lava. Lava. (laughs) I've never been able to say that. Lava, that's the closest I'm going to get. Daily. They'd have to wash before they could perform their duties, before they could go into the tabernacle. The high priest on the Day of Atonement had to wash and then had to take blood with him. And in Exodus 29, we read of the consecration of the priests, where again water and blood was involved. When a priest was consecrated, remembering you're a priest, they were washed before they could do anything. That's being sanctified by the power of the word, as I just explained. Titus 3.5 talks about that. They were clothed which speaks of being made acceptable, being made righteous, and then the blood was applied to them. Now, it's interesting where the blood was applied. The blood was first applied to the right ear. And... (laughs) Your right ear. (laughs) And that's a picture saying that you need to hear God. Your hearing has been sanctified and set apart for God. You need to hear what God is saying to you. That also means you need to be deaf to the things that aren't right. You need to be deaf to slander, for instance. Your ear has been bought. We've been bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not our own. Their right thumb had blood applied to it. That meant the service of their life, the things that they did, the skill that they have, your jobs, if you like, or art, or whatever, whatever you use your hands for, that has been consecrated to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Their right toe had blood applied to it. And that speaks of their walk for God, our walk for God, that daily we take God with us. Do you realise that? Think of some of the places you go to. Is that a good place for God to be? You take God with you. Your walk has been sanctified by blood, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in our case. Think about where you go. And then finally the duties of a true worshipper will start to wind up. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. We need to seize and lay hold the confession of our hope. We need to believe and live the truth. Live the hope. Confess the truth and build yourself up. Don't just believe it, but confess it. I've said to you many times, when you wake up in the morning, confess the truth of God, that you're accepted, that God's with you, 
that you're going to honour God this day, that it's a new day for God. Don't wake up and look at the rain and think, oh no, or the winds and think, oh, this is going to be a bad day. Confess the truth. Don't confess lies. Because hope in Hebrews 6 is said to be an anchor of the soul. It keeps you stable. Believe in God. So don't be surprised when Satan tries to take the truth away. That's why you need to confess the truth. Because sometimes your circumstances will almost be the opposite of what the truth is. And Satan will try and snatch the truth from you by telling you lies. Pete spoke about this last week. It's very important. Satan tries to put lies into your mind, not for the sake of the lies themselves, but to take away the truth. Because it's the truth that makes you free, Jesus said. He wants to take the truth out of your mind. So you need to build yourself up in the truth and confess the truth. Speak it out if necessary. Confess it daily. I am a child of God. I feel rotten, but I don't care. I'm a child of God. God is for me. This day is under the sovereignty of God. Everything I do is going to bless me. Even if it seems to be strange, I'm going to be encouraged by it. No matter what happens, people might say rotten things to me, I'm going to believe God's in control. That's the kind of life that builds itself up on truth and stops lies getting in. Because he who promised is faithful. Faith rests on the promise. Now we need to obtain the promises, or in Hebrews 6 verse 12, inherit the promises. Now I've just started making a note of all the promises I come across. I never used to do this, I just used to trust it to memory. But I've started making a book of all the promises in the scripture that I've noticed. Because I'm convinced there are promises that I'm missing out on. I'll give you an example. In Psalm 121 verse 8, it says... The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. If you like, although it's the other way around, the Lord will keep your comings and goings. And every time we go on a a long car journey where there might be danger involved, we claim this promise. We pray together in the car usually and we claim this promise that the Lord will keep our comings and goings. And so we believe God will keep us safe on the journey, will look after the car. And I tell you, we've been on some long journeys with some pretty horrendous cars. (laughs) <laughs> it's all sorts of bumps and bangs and all sorts of strange things going on but we've never had any trouble at all we've always claimed this promise now I'm not saying it's like some magic toy but we need to believe the promises the promises are like checks but if you don't take them to the bank and cash them in they're no good to you and it's as if God has given you a pile of checks it says right, write down what you want take it at the bank and cash it in we say oh God but I'm so poor You've got all the promise. This book is full of promises. Absolutely loaded with promises. And we never talk about the promises these days. It used to be fashionable about 20 years ago. You used to get these little promise boxes, which is more like clairvoyance. You used to pick one out and say, what's the promise today, Jim? And um, I, don't, I don't believe in those. I believe that by understanding the word, by knowing the promises for ourselves knowing how to get hold of God and by taking the promise back to God and saying, God, you said this. I believe it. Please, would you make it true in my life? We'd be a much richer people now if we would do that more. So I challenge you, look for the promises in Scripture in the Old and New Testament. Believe them. Live them. Obey them. And get hold of them. Don't have a pile of checks that you aren't cashing but you're complaining about being poor because that's what a promise is. And then he says, consider one another. Verse 24, consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. See, when you come to God and you get closer to God, you also get closer to your brethren. You can't come to God without being close to your brothers and sisters. And solitary religion is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as Christianity where you're on your own or a loner. I'm a Christian, but I'm a loner. That's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. There's no such thing. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to your brothers and sisters. So you need to consider one another. You need to edify and build up one another. Care for one another. Take care that you're an example to 
their good. Serve them, be loving, be understanding. Look out for their needs. She's just winding up the tape, I think. But you need to stir each other up. The word means to sharpen, to stimulate, to provoke. Provoke one another to love and good works. So think, you know, how can I stir my brothers up to love and good works? Think about it. Be creative. Do you come on a Sunday morning to provoke one another to love? Or do you just come as a passenger to sit down and be stimulated? Are you coming with an attitude, I'm going to consider my brethren in this time of worship and I'm going to encourage them? Or you just come and say, oh, well, it's another time of worship, let's see what happens. You know, oh, that was quite good, the Holy Spirit came there. What have you done to help that? I'm challenging you to listen to this word and participate and stir up one another, provoke one another to acts of love and kindness. It's a challenge, but it's a good challenge. Because the more we do that, the more I do it to you and the more you do it to me, it's going to be a good time. Something to look forward to, that everybody's stimulating everybody else to love and good works. And where it says love here, the actual literal translation is paroxysms of love. I don't even know what it means, but it sounds... <laughs> it's, it sounds pretty exciting to me. I should have looked it up in the dictionary before I came out, but it sounds like raptures of love, getting excited about God and getting excited. We want to stir one another up to get excited in our love for God. We want to come into the presence of God and stir one of them. God, great! I've had this wonderful thing happen to me last week, and God was wonderful, and God did this, and everybody's going, oh, that's great, yeah, let's sing another song. We, you know, we, we're so sort of stick in the mud sometimes. I mean, even when, it, even when we have a good time, we sing a few songs, we want to get going a bit more, share a few things a bit more, stir one another up a bit more. Let's get to higher heights than we've seen so far because everybody's participating, not just one or two at the front or one or two who are unafraid to shout out loudly at the back, but everybody sharing and stirring one another up. And the glory is going to bounce all around the room. That person says something and that bounces somebody off and, and somebody prophesies over there and that stimulates that over there and, and it's, oh, it's great being in the presence of God. There's all this going on around me all the time. It's wonderful. We need to stir one another up. We don't know much about it. Don't be a passenger. It's very interesting that after talking about faith, Paul talks about hope and love. And then he says, don't forget the importance of assembling together. Just finish on this. It's vital to grow in grace. And you only do that when you assemble together. Failure to do that results in danger. And the word for assemble here only occurs twice in scripture it occurs here and it occurs in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 where it talks about the gathering of the saints in the air to meet the Lord Jesus Christ so every time we get together it's like a foretaste of the day when Christ returns and gathers us assembles up all of us together to meet him it's eternal things going on here, brethren. When we worship together, we're touching the heavenlies. We're touching eternal truths. And the word is the same as when Christ returns and gathers us up to be with him. It's a foretaste of meeting Jesus together in the flesh. Every time, it should be as if Jesus walked into the room. And it's thrilling when we marvel at him. So we need to encourage, to admonish, and to look at how to disciple one another that all the more as we see the day dawning, the second coming, watch for it. Treat every day as if it were the last, John Calvin said. That's a good way to live. John Wesley was so sure of being in the will of God, somebody once said to him, said, if Jesus was to come tonight, and this was your last day on earth, what would you do? So he got his diary out, he said, I would go to Sheffield and preach in the morning. At 2 o'clock, I would go to such and such and preach. And at 3 o'clock, I would take this meeting at such and such. And then I've got a prayer meeting. at. He just would do what he was going to do anyway. He was so certain he was in the will of God. Are you? If today was your last day on earth, and you knew it, would you change what your plans are? We need to live in the light of the second coming. Jesus could come any time. Live like that, as if each day 
was your last. Okay, we've spoken about the backgrounds of being a worshipper. We've spoken about the characteristics of being a true worshipper. And we've spoken about the duties, what you need to do. So I just want to leave you with a thought. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Every time we come together, we're coming into the presence of God Almighty. The blood of Jesus has cleansed us. The whole atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ has enabled us to come freely and fully acceptable in his sight. There's nothing that needs to hold us back. So let's make the most of it. Let's our worship be real times of meeting with God in the Spirit because we're touching heavenly things. Eternal things are going on. Okay? Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. We thank you for all that you've done to enable us to meet with you. We, we think of the days before we knew you, Lord. And uh, some of us were just desperate to know God and got into all sorts of strange things. I can remember the strange things I got into in the hope of knowing God. Oh, God, and yet after we get saved, sometimes we get lukewarm. And that's no good at all. And Father, we want to be able to be excited about being in your presence. We want to stir one another up into paroxysms of love, Lord. We want to really understand that God Almighty is in our midst when we worship, when we pray, when we come to you together. So we ask, would you touch our times of worship, Lord? Would you stimulate us during the week so that we're preparing ourselves, treating each day as if it was the last, ready to come and share together and stimulate one another on a Sunday morning. Lord Jesus, we want to honour you in all that we do. We want to live lives that are under your spirit, so that when we come together, we're just so full of good things to say and good things to do in your presence. Help us, Lord. Stimulate our times of worship continually. May we grow and grow and grow in our apprehension of the things of God. Amen.